Hello, I'm Julia Verlaine from J.P. Morgan, and welcome to the second episode of our LIBOR transition series. In our first episode, we discussed benchmark reform in the U.S., with SOFR having been selected as the alternative reference rate. But this is a global effort with $400 trillion in assets across currencies, including the British pound, euro, and the Japanese yen, to name a few, that are likely to migrate to new reference rates. So let's talk about benchmark reform across the globe. To do so, I am joined by Charles Bristow, Global Head of Rates, Fixed Income Financing, Credit Portfolio Trading, and Markets Resource Management at J.P. Morgan, Chris Palmer, who leads the firm-wide LIBOR transition program, and Cyprian Deku from Rate Structuring in EMEA. Basically, I'd like to set the stage with one question, which is, when is LIBOR actually going away, and what is the time frame for this across the globe? Let's just jump straight into that. Time of death, when is it really? Well, that is the multi-trillion dollar question, I guess, <laughs> Julia, isn't it? I mean, everyone would like to know that the reality is, is there's, there's a lot of pressure for there to have been a very material, if not complete, amount of uh, migration by 2021. Uh, the, 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 the banks that submit to the LIBOR panels have committed to continue to submitting until that date. But beyond there, there's a huge degree of uncertainty. And, you know, one of the, the issues plaguing LIBOR for many years has always been the sort of uncertainty over its stability. But clearly, as you approach that deadline, that uncertainty increases. So, you know, that's a big date. Whether or not it's reasonable for all transactions to have migrated by that point in time is hotly contested. And hence, at some point, I guess we'll speak about fallback mechanisms. But you have to start to think about what happens beyond that date uh, if the panel isn't any longer supported. And if, if I can add to that, I think a lot of people are questioning whether it will actually happen. And in my view, this reform will happen. People tend to think, you know, that this reform is sometimes driven by suspected uh, wrongdoing. But the real fundamental issue behind this reform is actually the fact that the interbank market changed radically since the financial crisis. The number of transactions went down dramatically since the, the crisis. And there's not a lot of active rates that are the background of this LIBOR rate. This is not going away. This is a real issue, and we need to address that. And that's, that's why this effort was started in 2014, and we are in the process of addressing this issue. But I guess the real question is, are reforms happening at the same time in different regions? And can we get into that? And maybe we should take it back and talk about what is happening in the UK with the selected reference rate and then Europe. But if reforms are happening at different times, then is there also a risk of market fragmentation? And that's what I'd like to ultimately get to with this timeline question. So first of all, I want to strongly agree with Cyprian in that the, 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 the resolve to get this delivered is absolutely huge. So you know, if there's if there's any doubts about the question of whether whether this will occur and whether at some point it will lose momentum, I think people have to get past that. This is this is not a this is not an if it's a when problem. Um, and I think when you're involved in the in the working groups, as I have been, and as, as a number of people here at JP Morgan have been, you really see that. Whether that's from the other industry participants, the end users, politicians, regulators, you know, around the tables in those working groups is a huge determination to make it happen. Um, you know, the reality is there's a huge amount of inventory, and that migration process isn't super easy, and the questions aren't simple. Um, but the, the resolve to make it happen is unwavering. If I talk about one of the working groups that I've that I've worked on, which is the the the, the UK Risk Free Working Group, which was looking at the 
um, at, at, at the migration of, of, of sterling LIBOR. Um, you know, we were obviously focused on determining what's the appropriate what's the appropriate um, alternative benchmark um, to, to, to succeed sterling LIBOR, or at least to base a sterling interest rate and, and other derivative market on. As is well known, that group chose Sonia or rather reformed Sonia. So actually that was an interesting one in that in other parts of the world, people were choosing brand new indices. Um, after really looking at all of the options, what, the, what we found in the UK was that actually the old Sonia wasn't a fundamentally flawed index. There was actually a reasonable number of transactions and the market was very stable. Given that, given that Sonia was already an accepted index, um, reforming it to make it stronger and then just having it as an ongoing index that was that had more depth was 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 viewed as a way to guarantee the migration have more certainty and more confidence and so that was really the driver behind picking it mm-hmm. and so what about in Europe I mean I know they're pursuing a hybrid approach your rival is not going away do you kind of want to fill us in there yeah yeah sure so I think in Europe in continental Europe the the starting point was that uh, the European Commission did uh, put a specific EU benchmark regulation in place. This regulation created some set of criteria in order to select whether the current benchmark, which are Euribor and Ionia, were compliant or not. What they immediately found is that these two benchmarks were not compliant and work needed to be done in order to reform or change these indices. Let's take these two indices separately because they, they led to different outcomes, starting at the moment with Euribor. EMMI, which is an administrator of uh, Euribor, decided to reform this, this index. What they did effectively is to, to create a waterfall methodology. Uh, this waterfall methodology is supposed to use much more uh, transaction-based indices rather than judgment and panel-based indices. On the other side, you have Ionia. Um, very early in the process, EMMI, which is also administrating uh, Ionia, decided that Ionia would not be benchmark compliant and they didn't even try to reform it. Uh, the ECB at the same time created a working group and they selected a new index, which is called ESTER, which stands for Euro Short Term Rate. In terms of timing, because that was part of your question, uh, ESTER will be launched on the 2nd of October. And one very important thing about this index is that it will be linked to Ionia for a foreseeable future. This means that once uh, Esther is launched, Ionia will track uh, Esther with a fixed spread and the liquidity will completely move from um, Ionia to Esther relatively quickly. I mean, this is something Charlie can probably comment more on. But, but it should really help the liquidity of the Esther market. Yeah, it's a clever migration mechanism because effectively by putting them in, in lockstep, it's analogous with pegging a currency. You're, you're somewhat turning them into the, to the same thing from a, point, from, from, a, from a moment in time. And in terms of liquidity, I mean, and how that's evolving in these two different regions, is the UK more advanced? So UK is definitely more advanced. So in credit to Europe, they, they probably um, come from behind in their preparedness. I think Europe went through a longer discussion phase and then has, has in quite quick succession been making decisions and, 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 and moving into an implementation phase. I think in, in the UK, those were going, going side by side for a long period of time. You know, the UK has the advantage in that Sonia is a pre-existing index. So there's already stock in it. There's already daily need. People are trading it. Um, so there is already liquidity. I mean, I think if you look at, for instance, issuance markets, there's not a huge market in issuance of floating rate bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, but every floating rate bond so far this year has been that's, that, that's been issued in sterling has been referencing Sonia. 
you know, so you know, clearly you can see goodwill in that market towards uh, to, to, towards migrating towards the use of Sonia wholesale. Um, we have a very stable large market in Sonia-based swaps, um, particularly at the short end of the curve. Um, and there is liquidity at the long end of the curve. But for now, because the inventory remains on LIBOR index, the maintenance of that industry still stays there. So the real challenge for the industry and for the stakeholders in this is to get to the next stage where you begin to transition the, 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 this, the stock of inventory into a Sonia base so that the maintenance of it starts to be Sonia based. So where are both regions at in terms of the plan and in terms of developing a term rate? Is Europe in the same page as the UK or do we have different solutions? Okay, so I'm going to answer that question in a second. Okay. But first of all, I just want to say something on term rates, because actually it's, I think it's important to define what we mean. So LIBOR, in reality, was a family of term rates, i.e. three-month LIBOR, six-month LIBOR, 12-month LIBOR represented different things. They were credit for different terms. Um, and as such, 12-month LIBOR wasn't the expectation of three periods of three, uh, four periods of three months. It was actually a, a different thing. You know, wh- when we talk about term rates... Uh, for, for for overnight indices, they're not term rates in the same way as LIBOR was. They're not actually measuring term of credit. All they're doing is saying at the beginning of a period, this is our expectation of the average level of the overnight over the coming period. And it's a technical point, but it but it really matters because the point is whether you whether you observe it monthly, quarterly, semi annually, annually, ultimately you're still economically trading the same thing. It's just the an expectation of 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 um, the period to come. Um, you know, and and as such, what you're helping is more with an administrative burden. You're not actually fundamentally changing the nature of the product. So, just want to get that off my chest because um, term rate means two different things to two different people. So, the big question you're asking is that: Do you actually need this term rate, and who need this term rate? And and I think the answer is a little bit um, complicated because it depends on who you're asking. Uh, they did a survey, for example, in the UK. The working group did. And the consultation was relatively clear that people who are cash market participants, so people who are using loans, bonds, um, floating rate nodes, uh, etc., needs a term rate. You know, there there are a number of people that, that that need them. If you're investing in a note, you want you want coupon certainty. If you're a corporate treasurer, treasurer, you actually at the beginning of accrual periods really need to get some sense of the, you know, your your costs and expense profiles over that coming period. So there are a number of real reasons for it. And then the other point is that if you want to find a way to comfortably migrate legacy inventory, which was based on uh, you know, a LIBOR fixing that fix at the beginning of the period. Obviously, that transition path um, from the from, from, from an old LIBOR fixing onto the new, say, overnight based rates is going to be a lot easier if you can observe some sort of fixing that lets you know what the accrual rate is at the beginning of the period. Uh, you know, so that's a that's a big problem that needs solving. You know, and I think there is in, in the working groups now a lot of focus on working out what the right thing to do is. And, and I think also, if I can just add one point, derivatives are also practically much easier to change because most of them are governed by ISDA. Uh, ISDA is working with the market participant to find solution. And once it's done, it's done, you know, in one go, you know, for a lot of trades uh, happening at the same time. If you look at the cash market or the, the retail market, it's a completely different game to actually restructure even a small number of trades or a small number of notional takes 20, 50 times the effort because there's not the same legal framework. It's using different system. It's much more directional. So sometimes the volume can be misleading and the vast majority of trades 
using LIBOR are derivatives, but they don't always represent the biggest issue to overcome. And it's very important because what the market is trying to do is to help on the operational side, on the predictability of cash flows, but we don't want to go back to the initial issues that LIBOR was. We are not trying to re-put some credit element into, into the index. Exactly, and Cyprian's now the really important point, which is that as the wholesale market changed, the reality is, is banks stopped needing term credit from one another. You know, the nature of how banks were trading, were borrowing from each other changed, and that was really what underpinned the, 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 the sudden reduction in the number of, of transactions underpinning LIBOR. We talk about the regions now, to actually answer your question. Um, the different regions are approaching it slightly differently. Now, in Europe, there there is a willingness to, for some period of time, reform, reform Euribor, which is a credit term in de- index, so analogous to, 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 to LIBOR, um, to make it usable for, you know, for, for a good period of time and to make the transition mechanism um, smoother, whilst at the same time bringing in ESTA um, and then also creating um, a, a term fixing based on ESTA. So in Europe, you can envisage there being two parallel markets, obviously with the bulk of the transactions and the interbank transactions, so the, the, the exchange of interest rate sensitivity between banks taking place on ESTA, um, but, but holding open the ability for people to sustain your eyeball trades um, and sensitivity to your eyeball where that's the right risk management instrument. Um, I'd say in the UK, uh, the, the, there's a reluctance to go fully down the path of these these term fixings, but a recognition that it may in the short term aid transition. And that's, I'd say, um, you know, a, a conversation that's ongoing now. And obviously the point about these term fixings of overnight indices is they do require a market that's trading and can be observed to determine the fair value. I know, Cyprian, did you want to talk about the US or Chris? With respect to term rates, so the Fed has launched indicative term rates now. So there's an expectation that those term rates um, will become available to trade not until at least the second half of 2021. So they're posting them now to show how the methodology works to give people an indication of what they may look like. But as far as them being represented in any contracts, we're still at least you know, 18 months away from that happening. They are based off futures. So that's one of the other discussion topics is around is the different methodologies to create that term structure around the globe. If you, I'll sort of spend a bit of time now talking about Japan. They have multiple rates at the moment. So their overnight rate is Tonar. So they are looking to launch futures next year and potentially develop a term rate off the back of that in the future. But they are also going to con- continue to keep Tybor. So that hasn't been confirmed yet, but there is a consultation that is coming out to talk through that. If you compare that to Switzerland, Switzerland's overnight rate is Sauron. So they've moved that. That market has already openly said that there will be no forward-looking term structure created off Sarin because they don't believe they have enough transactions in the market to create an IOSCO-compliant forward-looking term rate. So it does show that there are some differences around the globe in the approach to term rates. So, I mean, you've just thrown around a lot of acronyms. So what I'm wondering is if I am a client and I am going to have to adapt to these changes and understand as well, if I'm trading in multiple regions, how do I wrap my head around all of this and where are there going to be divergences? It's a a very good point because we have a lot of clients that are, as you said, multi-currencies. They are trading in different markets. I think what you can get from the conversation earlier is that 
the reform is happening everywhere in different form. But there are still a few countries, you know, that are a little bit behind, but they are now waking up to the issue and they, they are starting to launch their own working group and, and reform process. All these regions are facing the same issues, whether it's should we go for unsecured versus secured? Should we push for term rate or should we purely base it on overnight? So everybody is coming up with different conclusions, but the questions are always the same. The difficulty for some clients is to say the timing is different and the nature of the index is different. For example, you will have some indices that will be secured and also are unsecured. And, and we hear sometimes, you know, clients are saying, it's an issue for me because there are two different instruments. And if I, for example, trade a cross-currency swap and one leg is secured and the other leg is unsecured, uh, it's an issue for me. And, and I think the, the, the reasoning is that in a crisis, you know, a secured index will behave differently from an unsecured index. The, the first one is that all these indices are overnight. An unsecured overnight rate, yes, does have a little bit of credit, but it's, it's a very small amount of credit because you only take a view on the overnight basis. And the second thing is that the differences in methodology already happened before, you know. Euribor and LIBOR were fundamentally differently defined at the different number of panel banks. They were different instruments and people were trading Eurodollar cross-currency swap without even questioning it. Do you want to dive into the secured versus unsecured? Yeah, so Cyprian's right. Uh, you know, the, 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 these, are, these are issues where p- that people need to understand. They won't manifest themselves very often. The, the, the point is, though, and yeah, maybe I'm thinking with a trade ahead here, the only thing that really matters is how these things behave in a crisis. Like, you, you've got to be prepared for, for, for the rainy day. Um, and a crisis isn't necessarily a credit crisis. Cyprian's absolutely right. The secure, you know, the, the one-day credit of secured versus unsecured, even in a pretty big crisis, is generally um, you know, not, not worth a huge amount of, of basis points. But there are other factors that can cause deviation between secured and unsecured. So to go back to your question, I do think that you've got to, you have to know whether the index you're trading references the unsecured world or the secured world. Secured means it looks at transactions onto to, to, to repo trades. So where banks are, are borrowing or lending against, against securities, usually bonds, um, as, as collateral. Unsecured, obviously, as, the, as it suggests, where they're just lending to each other. They, they do mean a huge amount because, you know, in general, you would say, yes, secured always is better credit and therefore should always trade under unsecured. But actually, if you look at the history, um, there are plenty of occasions where secured rates have traded over unsecured because actually some of the things driving it are dynamics related to banks' balance sheets or capacity to deploy cash, um, you know, that can actually have very unexpected effects on, you know, on, on where they would actually find it rational to transact in those underlying products. It's really important that people understand if they're going to, if they're going to transact in any financial instrument that they understand actually what underpins it. So you're going to have a couple of different families, secured and unsecured, you know, and, and I think it is an unfortunate um, consequence of the fact that each of these indices is being reformed within its own geography, that there will be some international products that will ultimately um, contain one flavor and then and the other flavor. Um, I mean, the biggest example of secured rate is SOFR, is an average of repo rates. Um, and, and what you can see is that uh, it's trade relatively technical. So uh, we are, I don't think we need to go into the details, but you need to understand, you know, the repo market in order to understand how software works. 
Um, and if you want to understand the repo market, you, want to, you need to understand how banks allocate balance sheets and what the banking regulations is, etc. And a lot of people that used to trade derivatives in and out or for aging purposes, you know, don't actually want to understand that. So, so the market needs to adapt. People need to understand it. Um, all these issues, you need to be inside the brain of uh, the traders or, or inside the, the brain of the people who are doing edging. We're touching upon something important here, which is what I'd like to know is the transition program that JP Morgan's doing. So, Chris, you're running that. And this sounds like we're dealing with lots of different currencies, reforms, systems. Educating clients seems to be the main thing that Cyprian's touching upon. But could you talk about the JP Morgan transition program and what we're doing? Yeah, sure. So you've hit the nail on the head in the sense that you have to educate the market in understanding all these intricacies of, of how everything's connected because it, the term I use is it's not a race you can win and we can't pat ourselves on the back and say we're all set up, we're organised, we've done our transition because the reality is you can only move as fast as the industry is running. So from that perspective, we've spent a lot of time talking to clients both in conferences, uh, one-to-one meetings with clients. So they really want to know how have we structured our program. So we broke it into five work streams. So the first one is around implementation of new rates. So can you actually deal in the new rates? So Charlie mentioned before around corporate treasurers, for example, wanting to make sure that they had forward cash flows. If we didn't have forward term rates, there's a lot of system changes that are required to be able to book a loan, for example, that compounds in arrears. There are infrastructure providers out in the market who need to change their systems. The second one's around fallback language and executed documents. So what's in your documents? And that's a huge task and actually it's seen as the biggest risk in the industry at the moment is around trying to understand what actually language relating to fallbacks, be they securities, be they derivatives for the ISDA consultation or on the cash side, what's actually written there and then how can you amend that language. The third one's around measuring your exposure to LIBOR. So understanding what products you have in your inventory today that have LIBOR on them and how do you regularly update that, um, that inventory to report that to your senior managers. And what we've seen is the DCO letter last year was a really good indication that you had to be prepared to present that to a regulator. The fourth one's around sort of risk management reduction. And Charlie and Cyprian have both mentioned the fact that we need to work with our clients to try and work out how we can reduce our exposure to LIBOR over time. So as the alternate rates increase in liquidity, there'll clearly be a swap and there's a transition for that. So how do we proactively talk to our clients on that process? And then the fifth one's around client education and communication. And we've spent a lot of time at conferences I referenced before talking through some of the specifics and actually not just talking to the senior treasurers, but actually talking to the next level down of staff as well, talking to their operations team, their technology teams. And the national working groups that have all been created have now started to create some infrastructure working groups as, as well. And, and, and I think there is one thing which is very important in what Chris is saying is that this reform will happen, but also it's affecting clients on very different groups. So, so you need to have your legal team aware of it. You have to have your ops team aware of it. You have to have your uh, uh, IT and pricing uh, team involved as well. And, and this always takes time. All these teams need to, need to work together, but in parallel. If you have done all the legal analysis, if you are ready to, to change, but if your system are not up to date, there is not much you can do. And Charlie, how are you thinking of this with your trader hat on? So in the, in the question of you know, are we going to be ready? I, you know, I don't, the reality is, is the derivatives market will be absolutely fine because 
The derivatives market already trades loads of currencies onto loads of different indices. We've got entire teams of quants that, you know, can go out and transition our tools. And, you know, the traders are used to working with different indices and interpreting them and all the rest of it. So I actually have no concern at all that whenever this transition happens, there'll be liquidity in, in, in whatever is the appropriate underlying index. You know, I think that the problem is, is because the derivatives market based on LIBOR is so big, there is a real danger that people think it's a derivatives market problem. And I think, you know, if there's a if there's a call to arms, the answer is like it, it isn't. I think people have to envisage for a moment, you know, you've kind of got to do that thought experiment. If if you have a system that somehow pulls in a swap price or a fixing or a reference rate or, or a loan rate that in some way references LIBOR and you're running a company that you know, it does anything from selling cars and, and offering finance or you know, whatever you do. If one day that rate can't be plugged into your core central system and that shuts your business down, then you really need to be engaging with it. And some of those solutions could be really, really simple and some of them actually could be really taxing. And I think and until people actually start, you know, really getting to the details of what does this mean for me, actually, there's 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 scope for lots and lots of small accidents. Um, when I look at with the trader hat, you know, I, I, I think we should probably talk a little bit about fallbacks. Obviously, the big concern with LIBOR has always been, you know, you've seen this 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 sort of massive downslope in the in the number of volumes of transactions that underpin the index. And quite rightly, everyone's saying, hang on a second, you've got you know trillions and trillions of transactions referencing this index that now doesn't have a huge underpinning. Um, and of course, quite rightly, people worry, well, what happens when it's not there one day? Um, we, we commented earlier about the fact that it's only committed until 2021. So you need some kind of mechanism to say, well, if it's not there one day, what should we do? And actually, what's going on in the world of fallbacks is really important. Because, you know, in practical terms, if an index has a fallback, then what you're beginning to say is actually the path of least resistance is to transition legacy inventory onto whatever the fallback proposes it should go to. You know, for instance, recently, um, the fallback language that ISDA's discussing um, is taking a direction towards looking at, well, what's the recent average of the various tenor, tenor um, basis spreads and saying, if ever the, 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 the LIBOR panel fails, you take those spreads and you project them forward forever. Yeah, inherently, what that means is that the basis loses term structure. Like forever, the same spread exists for term. Um, you know, so the market's very quick at snapping to that and saying, so now there's no term structure. Um, you know, and so I think people need to look at the fallback language because the fallback language is giving you a clue as to how generally rational participants will think about transitioning. Chris, could you help define fallback language for us? Yes, yeah, so fallback language is the language that's written into the existing documentation that would occur should LIBOR not be available. The problem with most fallback language in the documentation today is it's written on the basis that LIBOR is unavailable for one day or two days, etc. It's not written on the context that LIBOR is not available forever. And teasing out something before, why is there this misconception that this is a derivatives problem? Why, why are people overlooking the other I think side? The, I, think, I think it's as simple as the fact that the, 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 the optical numbers, you know, the hundreds of trillions that people quote around derivatives are such awe-inspiring numbers that it, you know, that, that, just, that just becomes like the, the big elephant in the corner of the room and no one can take their eyes off it. You know, when you're talking about hundreds of trillions and somebody wants to talk to you about a hundred million structured mortgage book inside a, you know, in, in, inside a regional lender, you think, oh, that doesn't really matter too much. But the reality is, is that, you know, that, that mortgage product, that structured note, that retail um, investment is real 
tangible money and is actually extremely relevant to the to the individual or the entity that has it you know the the, the derivatives notionals yeah it's really exciting but the reality of the derivatives market is so much of it nets down so much of it is a it's a it's a notional that's why in derivatives we call it notional um you know it is a, it's a reference amount that talks about the amount of risk in the in in, in the instrument but there are libor based products that are real cash products and where the notion of those products are extremely relevant relative to the size of the holders. Just to put on to that point as well, practically the system changes and the operational changes required to solve those cash problems are far greater than the derivative problems. So as Charlie mentioned, there are, you know, from a, a processing perspective, from a technology point of view, the quants associated to it, the changing of the curves, derivatives businesses do this every day. That's just natural to them. The corporate market and the FRN market, that's a bigger change. And the, the, greatest move that we've seen so far that's been successful is the Sonya issuance of FRNs and the fact that they're compounding in arrears and that investors have bought those and that is a shift that's moved. That took some time. It was a bit slow at the beginning, but that has taken some time. But you think about that, that's we're 12 to 15 months into that process now. If clients haven't started that, that system change now and you're 12 to 15 months to make that change, you're into 2021 nearly. I agree with that. And, and talking about 2021, you know, the... the, the, the Humanity and markets especially have an amazing ability to sort of ignore something that's not just immediately around the corner. Um, 2021 will seem like a long, long way away. <laughs> a bit like Brexit. Uh, well, 2021 will seem like a long way away um, until it's the end of 2020. And then it's Q1 in 2021. And then at some point, people will begin to look at their, you know, their, their, their cash instruments or the derivative instruments and say, hang on a second, what happens now? And, you know, you, you tend to go in a completely irrational way between thinking something is next next year's problem to thinking, you know, to being right in the middle of a, of a, of a major crisis. So, you know, I think people need to, to, to realise that if they've got a year or two's work to do, now's the time to start engaging. So that, that's interesting because this change is very different to uh, CFTC we've had with Dodd-Frank, MIFID, etc. So all of these programmes... You know, the phrase I use is banks, our size, we tend to run very fast to the finish line very well and we make all these deadlines. They're regulatory deadlines. As of this date, you must have this new uh, trading profile or this new customer outreach, whatever it may be. This is a completely different program. It has to be run completely differently. You need to plan far, far ahead in comparison to previous programs that we have. We can't wait till Brexit's over and we know what the answer to Brexit is before we throw resources at this program because if you do that, you will miss the boat. That wraps up our discussion for today, so thank you for your time. Thanks, Julia. Thanks. We've covered a lot of ground here today, but unfortunately, we need to leave it here. But this is clearly an evolving topic, and our main goal is to continue educating our clients further. As such, we have articles on jpmorgan.com, this podcast series, along with regional client events and roundtables. Thanks for listening. The views in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of JPMorgan Chase or its affiliates. This communication is provided for information purposes only. J.P. Morgan Chase, or its affiliates, collectively J.P. Morgan, normally make a market and trade as principal in securities, other financial products, and other asset classes that may be discussed in this communication. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, and for further information about benchmark reform and the transition away from LIBOR, please consult the links in the description.